everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by SWAN. Now this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it, as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Louis Liu, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Happy to be here. Thank you, Robert, for having me. It's great to have you. This series has been a long time in the making. Um, I guess first I have to thank you for introducing me to this book that we're going to be discussing, which is Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World by Rene Girard. Uh, this is one of those books that really shatters your worldview in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's had a similar impact on you. So I'm really excited to explore this with you. Uh, just by way of quick introduction, you are the founder and CEO of Mimesis Capital. And that is a term which we're going to be unpacking a lot here. Uh, you're also a longtime Bitcoiner. And uh, maybe we could just start there. You know, what... And we'll get more deep into this, but what does the word mimesis mean? And what caused you to name your firm after that? Yeah, so mimesis really is meaning uh, imitation, right? And this is like an old word uh, started from Aristotle, Plato, and later on in the modern world, popularized by Rene Girard in his book that we are going to discuss about. Things hidden since the foundation of the world. He specifically talk about mimesis um, or uh, mimetic desire, which is you know human have a you know tendency to imitate each mm -hmm. other or want what other people want. Mm -hmm. um, so that's mm -hmm. the um, the definition of mimesis. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how were you introduced to this book? Because I know this, I think it came to you at a relatively young age and then obviously had a big impact on you. So maybe you could just tell us how you discovered this book and and what impact it, it has had. Yeah. Um, so I, the first time I read this book is informed by a good friend of mine. Uh, he's like an um, entrepreneur, um, Taiwanese entrepreneur, and uh, his, his family is one of the biggest donors uh, in Christian community uh, in Taiwan. Uh, he introduced me because, you know, he wanted me to read about, you know, um, Gerard, and, um, and this is how I get introduced. And, you know, when I, when I read it, you know, I think like everyone first time read it, this, uh, it gives you a shock, like how mm-hmm. the word works. And you, you kind of like looking at the, the glance of Gerard and you, you start to see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, so the word mimesis, it, I, I, I can't recall. I think it's an ancient Greek word. Could be wrong about that, but it's, the root word, uh, it's where we get words like mimic, imitate, yep. mime. Um, so it's all about this mirroring of action or behavior. And that yep. sort of simple, relatively simple observation almost that uh, I think Gerard is asserting in this book that essentially all human interaction is mirroring, right? We're mirroring one another all the time, even unconsciously, perhaps largely unconsciously. And then he extrapolates from that behavioral pattern uh, the development of ritual, religion, social institution, mimetic crisis, the victimage mechanism, scapegoating, all of these very interesting phenomena that seem to dictate human history and characterize human history in a lot of ways. And I think it goes a long way to explaining some of the craziness we're seeing in the world today as well. Um you're also a longtime Bitcoiner like myself. Uh, I think we'll have some interesting things to say about Bitcoin as we go along here. Um, and as this relates to money, as you, as we were just saying offline, uh, one of the most interesting things about this process where people mimic one another, as mm-hmm. Gerard describes it in the book, is when you see two apes reach for the same object, right? Reaching for the same banana, that it it sort of causes conflict there's this the the mirroring of one another can cause conflict in a, a world of scarcity of scarce resources and i think as that maps onto human beings you know money as we're seeing offline is clearly the most desired asset in the world almost by definition in that it's convertible into any other asset and uh in that way it essentially represents power right and people are always seeking more power and this mimetic exchange people are engaged in all the time seems to contribute to power struggles uh, in many, many domains. So uh, I guess the other interesting thing to say about this book is that it is Peter Thiel's favorite book. And I believe, you know, the author, Rene Girard, he's a French philosopher, historian, anthropologist. I think you were saying offline that maybe Peter Thiel actually uh, went to class and 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 went to a class Gerard talk, taught. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. They, they, I think Thiel was there in Stanford when Gerard also giving a lecture there. Mm. Yeah. 
Very interesting. And there's a video of him, Peter Thiel, um, talking about Gerard uh, on YouTube. You can, you can go find it. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Maybe we'll cut that in too here. So, okay. In economics, we're always talking about exchange, right? Exchange is sort of the, it's the activity that we engage in to overcome scarcity. But this seems to go like a layer deeper. Like typically when we talk about exchange and economics, we're talking about the actual trading of goods and services. But this is kind of a layer deeper where we're saying, no, all human interaction, like what we're doing right now, there's mirroring occurring between us. Yep. Um, so it's almost like all human action is of some form of mimetic exchange, which is really interesting to think about. And then this book ultimately goes into where it gets very fascinating is Gerard's interpretation of, of Jesus, right? And the story of Jesus Christ and being a key to transcending the logos of violence, perhaps. Um, is there maybe a couple of things you could say about that? Like how Gerard's relationship with Christ in this text? Yeah, I think, um, the first thing I started with Gerard's um, uh, original, original thesis about humanity and how the world works. Um, one, you know, one day he observed, you know, there's a desire going on, you know, um, in the human nature, like why people try to imitate, try to create this mimetic desire um, in the way that, you know, he fit, you find out this is like how the world works. Like, you know, we 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 all love something. It's not because we are truly love something. It's because what other desire. That's what, how we end up loving something or wanting something. And he, you think about like you think about that, and he get into deeper uh, thoughts. Like, if this is how the world works, will that end up like um, a huge conflict, a, a war that end all all humanity, and why? That hasn't happened yet, right? When you when you read about the gospel of the Bible, uh, you read about a politic um, situation when you know the world end. Jesus arrived. There's four horsemen, right? And um, and Gerard th think about that and think about how the world end up today, um, like how society function. If if the case of mad desires lead to the ultimate conflict. And how's that happen? Like that, that kind of ponder um, Gerard and he, he, he go a step ahead further. So he's, he started to study uh, uh, prehistory, right? Uh, anthropologies, especially the myth that he wanted to try to dig up the, um, the truth behind how the society function, how humanity solved this mimetic desire, um, the problem of the mimetic desire. And, um, and what he found out in the myth is that there's a pattern, right? Um, the pattern is um, society will reach agreeable term when they try to victimize someone and, um, and sacrifice it. And he called it scapegoat mechanism. And scapegoat mechanism is like very, um, I think th this is kind of word that people use a lot today. Like you scapegoating someone, basically you let others to take the, take blame of the whole problem, right? And that's how, you know, society can keep on functioning and keep on resolving conflict 
uh, for all times. And um, and the time is just like, you know, Asian, very, very Asian time. And you, you, can, you can see people perform ritual, um, sacrificing babies, um, um, you, know, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they can do, they try to perform the ritual um, to, to let the, um, the victim become like a, sort of like a god and hero uh, and solving the conflict in the society. And you, you have this kind of escalating situation um, throughout the history of time, right? And it's, it's quite bizarre, like it always ends up like scapegoating, the ritual event, sacrificing someone for the benefit of the whole humanity. Um, and when Gerald dig into that, and he, he started to read a little bit on the gospel, right? He started digging very deeply into the gospel. And what he found out in his worldview, it is kind of shocking to him, is that the, the, the answers already in the gospel, right? The answer to the scapegoating mechanism, how, how you know, um, you know, you, you go back to Cain and Abel, right? How that society, Cain society, functioning at the end, and God punish him, get a, get get wipe off all his um, descendants. Uh, because his civilization, civilization found out murder of his brother, Abel, right? Just because of envy of his uh, brothers get more loved by the God. And when you read that, you read, you know, gospel, you know, there's a myth in it. It's, there's a sacrificial element in it. There's a scapegoating element in it. And when, when he read tell the Jesus story, um, he, he figured out, you know, it, it just... Right in front of right in front of his uh, his his eyes when when you know when you read the gospel um, that Jesus is not a sacrificial scapegoat um, but rather like a savior like he's like a um, the hero or the um, the son of God in in, in in the gospel way to say that um, he actually break the cycle of scapegoating mechanism and reveal how the world works before him and how the world should be work after him. And the civilization that we see today uh, is built on that notion, right? That, you know, Jesus teaching, right? The love that Jesus gave to everyone and the decision that he tried to um, go on to um, the cross. And people read it like this is a sacrificial text, right? But Gerard thinks this is not a sacrificial text. This is something um, revealing a lot of truth behind it. And one of the truth is to reveal the, this common active desire hidden uh, in, in the myth, hidden in the, in, the, in the humanity, hidden in the foundation of the world. And Jesus is kind of like a, the first, first um, prophet, the first person that come up to it and say, you know, this is the truth. And let's face it, right? And, uh, and that's how... Gerard end up like believing in um, in the Christianity, and he thinks Christianity and Jesus is, you know, the savior of the world, and um, and that just you know what, you know, make him a Christian. Yeah, it's deeply fascinating when we get to those levels of analysis in this book, and you know the scapegoating thing. It, it, it seems to me like something that we still see occurring. You know, I think of 
if there's a crisis in a publicly traded company, you know, the, the CEO or the executive team will come out and resign, right? They sort of, either the board uses them as a scapegoat, maybe to sort of absolve some of the blame and then they can install a new management team and move on. Um, or perhaps there's some self-sacrificial element to it. But I guess the point being that when something goes wrong inside of an organization or society, people want to see someone blamed, right? Someone needs to suffer for it, for the, the wrongdoing or the mishap or whatever it may be. And that's, you know, but maybe that's just a part of human nature, but it definitely has this really pernicious consequence where, you know, we used to be locked into these blood feuds that the book talks about where one family murders a member of another member's family or tribe. And then that tribe in turn seeks vengeance on that family, who then seeks vengeance on that family. And these things would just go on and propagate, you know, for generations and generations. And, you know, post Christ, and just to be clear here, we can throw out the theological claims about Christ. We could even perhaps throw out the historical claims of whether he existed or not. Just the fact that it is a story that is part of our civilization. That's enough, right? That's enough to make this, um, to make it adequate to what we're discussing. I'm not saying that Christ did not exist or Christ was not God. I'm not rendering an opinion on that at all. I'm just saying it's not necessary. You could just say the story is embedded in our culture and our culture has gone from, you know, these blood feuds, for instance, to now we have something like the rule of law, right? We have, we have systems that have allowed us to transcend those mimetic crises. Um, And then the book and, and to your point too, yeah, there's a, he actually goes into a sacrificial reading of the gospels mm-hmm. and a non-sacrificial reading, which is really just fascinating to, to look at it from those two perspectives. And to give the audience some idea of how the book is organized, it starts out, there's basically three parts. Part one is this deep anthropological study on the, the formation of religions and, and ritual and whatnot. Part two gets more into the religious texts, right? Actually into the gospels yeah. uh, and, and the sacrificial, non-sacrificial reading of, of the story of Christ. And then the last part is really focused on psychology, right? Both, both I think, inter and intra-individual psychology. So, I mean, he really spans a wide spectrum of, of scientific study here, scientific and religious study to form this this unique thesis it's like a a very deep um book like you know because mimetic desire is kind of like metaphysic kind of explain a lot of like um um you know even even can you can you can explain the anthropology you know the myth in the past what was the pattern behind it um also the psychology of the individual and he talked about a lot like you know philosopher like um you know floyd or um, um, Nietzsche or Dobiaski, right? He talked about those, he referenced a lot of those um, great philosopher and he tried to be given each other like opinions on it. Uh, we're not gonna dive, dive deep into that because it's a kind of like complicated um, thinking process that Gerard Rebill um, in, in his book. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a broader, it's a very broad, idea in, in the book and he touched on you know different uh, aspect in the society which is very deep and it's kind of like you can you can kind of read it 
um, many times as you want. Um, try try to get what Gerard's thinking process is, and uh, and all his thinking process is derived from you know the idea that we keep talking about the method desire, how that is, um, and, you know uh, how that can how that become like a metaphysics to explain you know the great philosopher's work. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, so with that introduction, I mean, the other, we're going to go down a lot of rabbit holes, basically, I guess would be the punchline. There's a lot of other things we could preface here, but we'll just leave it at that and, and jump into chapter one. And it opens, speaking of great philosophers, with this quote from Aristotle, who wrote that, man differs from other animals in his greater aptitude for imitation. So again, this, this mimetic capability or impulse seems to be something that's very intrinsic to what makes us human. Um, yeah. and is, is related to you know, a number of things that, that we'll get into here, but, um, first thing I'll mention here in chapter one, he talks about, in every era, there's basically a discovery that threatens traditionally organized knowledge. So, um, and I'm reminded here, you know, as we were saying earlier about the, the Christ story, it's, and this is something Jordan Peterson talks a lot about. This is something that really mystified me the first time I heard it, that human beings live inside of stories. And if you, if you think about a story as like a, description of a sequence of events it's like well of course everything we do is a sequence of events that doesn't make a lot of sense but i think what the deeper meaning of story to me at least is this role that we feel fulfill in society right we play a role it's kind of like shakespeare you know the entire world's a stage and every man is an actor upon it something like that and it's these enacted roles we play right where whether you're playing the role of father at home you're playing the role of ceo at, at the office you might be playing the role of um a book club member you know we we fill all these different social niches and in that way we that's how we create human organizations right that we we engage with one another um in these different capacities of of authority or or competence, whatever it may be. Um, yet, as he opens in this chapter one, there's always a discovery that seems to threaten the way we organize those stories or organize knowledge. And uh, he goes on in page six, he's saying, uh, what is the quote here? I'll read the quote from page six. He says, The most we can do is to recognize man as the one who produces symbolic forms, systems of signs, and who then confuses them with reality itself, forgetting that in order to make reality meaningful, he interposes an always particular system of signs between reality and himself. So for me, that's, that's, he's really capturing the essence of what it means to live inside of stories, right? That we are humans are symbol makers, right? We're even right now, when we speak to one another, we're, we're exchanging symbols with each other, right? 
You were both running this open source software called English that allows us to connect our brains together. It's amazing. Yeah. But the, the, the downside to that is that we run the risk of confusing our symbolic creations with reality itself, right? The map is never the territory, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'd love to just hear, I guess, your thoughts on that initially. Like, How do you how you interpret humans living in stories and how you see that related to Gerard's opening of the book here. Yeah, I think it's tried to um, establish a foundation behind you know, what's going to happen next, right? He tried to explain um, the myth, the pattern of myth, um, which is myth is just a story um, that may or may not happen, but it tells the truth, right? Like as we discussed about whether or not Jesus is, is exist in the real world or not. But the reality is um, the story has, has meaning, right? And we all like um, capture, right? By, by, the, by the narrative and, the, and you know, the fascinating plots and, and the story um, in, in the, whether you read myth or whether you read gospel, um, it, it doesn't matter like if it's, if it's, a, it's a real or not, but it, it, it kind of like expose um, the truth, um, and, and how the world works in those texts, right? When you, when you read, uh, Shakespeare, right, those story may or may not exist, but it, it actually, you can kind of like, uh, think that, uh, it might happen in, in some corner in, in the society or in, in the family or in, in, in the kingdom. Uh, and that, that fraud process, so, um, uh, kind of like touch on, you know, the human nature, the human being, how human being function um, in many ways. It kind of like, it, it, the story itself is kind of like imitating in, in, in the, um, the, the reality, right? And it might not be the truth. The name might not be the same, but the structure of it um, and, and what happens to it, it might happen in the real world. And what, what people try to get from those story of myth or in, in the gospel is try to you know learn what are the lessons behind it. Like the whole historical book is kind of like a lessons. The gospel is kind of full of lessons, and and we call it that lessons like the truth of the world, right? And and story just like um, a way to express it, but it never expresses it like um, directly. It doesn't tell you direct. You know this is how the world works. Or this is, um, you know, you should do this, you should do that. You should avoid do this or avoid do that. Um, it's not like that. It's just, a, it's just a way for you to interpret uh, what you think, right? Like when, 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 with Gerard, interestingly, um, when he read the gospel, he read it differently than all other, what other people are reading. People, a lot of people read the gospel like it's a sacrificial text, right? But he read it as a non-sacrificial text. And this has been written 2,000 years ago. Or even even longer, right? Um, people interpret story differently, right? But there's a structure behind it that already exists. It's just like you know how you interpret it, and, and what's your thinking process. And you know, what you, if you ever read to the end of the book conclusion, if what Gerard concluded that his theory, he talks about this like you know the renovation is already there in the gospel. I'm just here to um give it out right interpret it in my way 
and uh, everything exists in, in the gospel. You just have to read it for yourself, interpret it in your own way. Uh, and that's what how Gerard concluded. He doesn't really um, think about like, this is, this is my theory and uh, this is my thought process and, um, and I, I, I'm entitled to it. He doesn't, he doesn't think that way. He thinks um, the, the story, the truth is already there for you. To, you, you just need to find out. Yeah, it's brilliantly said. He, I mean, he's essentially taking a new perspective on the Gospels, and he he repeatedly okay. says nothing is hidden, right? And he just he'll make a point and then re read the Gospel, and it's there, plain as day, um, yeah. just from a new vantage point, which is which is super interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and and I want to touch on you know um, like how philosopher you know like Jordan Peterson, like he doesn't really invent it any new thing, right? Like Gerard, right? He didn't invent it in a new thing. It's just read the gospel, right? And um, and and reveal the truth behind it. A and new interpretation. Yeah. And come up with a new new idea and a way to interpret it. But you can you can see the same pattern, right? And Jordan Peterson, like Gerard, uh, they all have their own uh, interpretation of the gospel. And shockingly, there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, something you said there was really interesting to me too. That we we made the point that humans engaged in real time action are always mirroring, right? We're engaging in mimesis all the time, but there's also a mimesis taking place between the mythological heroes and the individual, right? As the individual is reading or studying these mythologies or even enacting them, they are there's a mirroring occurring there as well. Um, I'm thinking of you know, just one example they, they talk about how I, I've read this book recently, the inventing the individual and how pre-Christ, the notion of the hero was much more like Odysseus, right? He's a seafaring adventurer, you know, big, strong guy, like leading the charge. But then the, the conception of hero shifted after Christ where it became much more like loving, compassionate, you know, turn the other cheek, love thy enemy. He actually changed the nature of mythological heroes. And that creates a feedback into the actual society where people, um, one of the things that really led to the progression of the Christian church were the martyrs, right? They would protest through martyrdom effectively. And they were, they were again, mirroring Christ in a way that they were taking a heroic approach that that he took that was not like Odysseus, you know, leading yeah. a charge into battle, but it was a more of a, you know, almost got like a Gandhian type heroism is much more Christ-like than the, the conception of, of the hero pre-Christ. And so yeah. the myth, you know, again, we say we live in stories, I guess you could also call them mythologies. They kind of become carriers or containers for norms, for, for morals, you know, the moral of the story that we're all kind of living out. And I think, you know, it doesn't, we say like the myth is not real, but I think the myth is not real in the same way, like numbers aren't real. You know, they're, Peterson often calls them hyper real, right? Where there's a lot of things that can fit the category of three, right? Anything that has threeness. That doesn't mean three isn't real. It just means it's it's useful and applicable in one domain, right? And it turns out to be a very important domain, <laughs> mathematics. 
And the myth is sort of the same as like we observe a lot of human action across long periods of time and we abstract out the commonalities or the principles and we, we, we distill that into uh, less, you know, a few stories. And then maybe we distill that again into one until you get to something like Christ, which is an archetypal hero myth, right? It's like yeah. the ultimate betrayal and attack and all that met with compassion and um, love and, and everything that Christ represents. So, you know, it, we have to be careful with that word real, you know, I think it's very dangerous for people like, oh, it's just, we even say it's common in the West. Like, oh, that's a myth, which means it's not like it's untrue. But I would argue yeah. there's, you know, we have to be careful with that terminology because, well, okay, is math real? I mean, you could say no, three is not anything floating around, but math gives us this extremely powerful gra grasp of the universe. And I think myth offers us something similar. Yeah, I mean, you know, even even the Christian church, right? Um, there are a group of people read it like literally. They really believe, you know, the the ark, Noah's ark exists somewhere, oh. right? Literally, and there are people um, really like really like this is like just like a um, a story, right? There's a, there's something behind it. We don't we don't have to believe in every word they say, but um, there's a certain meaning behind behind a story and i think we should be um focused on the meaning rather than the literal literal text yeah it's a great great point that literal interpretation is not the only true interpretation perhaps that you know uh -huh. there can be a moral of a story that's very useful and relevant and real in the sense that it influences human action doesn't mean that it's a that it's historically true and it doesn't really matter in a lot of cases it really yeah. i mean this is just like um it, it could be it, it might happens right it's just like you know the story of I, I go back to like heroism you know story of maybe um Oedipus is, is is a real or not uh it doesn't matter but the better is storytelling the truth that will reveal behind it um and how you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy story, like the story of Shakespeare, right? It, this is, is it real, like King Lear is real, not, it doesn't matter, but what matters is just like the meaning behind the story or what, you know, the story of King Lear try to tell you. I think that's um, that's more, in, you know, uh, interesting to explore rather than figure out if King, King Lear really exists or not. Yeah, agreed. And just one more maybe example to drive home the point you know, government isn't real. Businesses aren't real. Like all these social constructs we create, they're not any concrete reality. They're this shared conceptual or imaginal space, right? That we, right? You're the CEO of a company, right? You go, you have people that work underneath you, underneath you, right? They're not physically underneath you. They're just in this hierarchy that you all have agreed to participate in they act as if you are above them in the sense of authority or whatever it may be. And there's a useful, that's, that's a necessary, useful, functional structure, but it's not real in the sense that it is actually observable or concrete. You know, it's, it's a story, right? It's a story. Mimesis capital is a story. And all these things, all these human organizations that we're involved in, you know, nation state, city, company, you know, 
you go on and on sports teams. These are all stories that we're basically living inside of. And they are as real. They are real to the extent that we act as if they exist basically. So as long as we act as if, you know, government has power, then well, government's going to have power. As long as we act as if uh, maybe this money is useful, then it's going to be useful. Now there's some real, it's not like, it's such a hard thing to talk about because it's not purely a belief system. It's not like you just believe whatever you want. Like, let's all believe bananas are money. That's not going to work because bananas don't have, there's objective qualities that we desire in money that bananas lack, for instance. So there's this weird sort of feedback between our subjective stories that we're creating and then objective reality. And we live somewhere in between. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And you think if you think about this large organization, right, and why they are so dominated and so um, so you know you know lasting, um, I think there is is like um, maybe I did desire play that role because the symbolic you know of the CEO or the symbolic of presidency, right, is so grabbing and and people want to want to dance so bad. And that keep the um, structure and organization lasting, right? But you know, is is that a good method desire? Is that a good mimesis, or that just like a way you just wanted to compete, you just want that title, and you work so hard in the hierarchy to reach that you know the top, and after you reach to the top, you, you have all the power and what's left. Right. And, you know, if you look at Christ's story, it's just like when, when he realized he's the son of God, like he, he literally, literally, right, it's, it's on top of the hierarchy, right? Whether or not he's a, he's a human being or not, he's the son of God, right? That's, you know, as a human, you are on the top, very top, right? But he realized, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just act like, um, you know, a, a, a totalitarian leader, Right, he should act with love, and that's what his interpretation of being being a son of God, being a, a king um, in his kingdom, right? A beloving um, human being, a beloving um, you know the king, king king of the his kingdom of God, right? Um, so if you're looking at you know more you know um, more into the real the real organization today, you know government agency or whatever. Um, are, they, are they performing a good nemesis? Um, but it keeps it keeps the society uh, function, right? And because there's a mimetic, um desire with that power and, and role, and that creates kind of like competitiveness. And that also, you know, you know, it kind of like destroying um, a lot of human humans interpretation of you know what what is the real life is. Is the real life uh, um, a way to fight for a role in, in a company or the life is about taking care of your neighbor, right? Taking care of your family, right? And people sacrifice a lot to fight for the hierarchy. And, um, and is, is that a good desire, right? But it kind of like forces you into that. Like you, if you work for a big corporation or you work for a government agency, there's a certain uh, systematic you know, that's working um, on you. That tell you this is a this is a way of life, and you should you should desire this role, and you keep climbing to the top, 
right? And that's how organization kind of like structured. And it's very interesting, right? And, and there's a mathematic in, in, that, in that thinking, right? Why do I want to become a CEO of a company? That, because that represents power, right? And that represents uh, something you want. Because if you don't want it, somebody else will, right? And they all fight for that role. Um, you know, that, that's like kind of like last for a small company, but for large corporation, even, you know, governments, that, that mimetic desire is even bigger. And would that com- create conflict or that create a very natural way of, you know, capitalism type of um, free market dynamic, right? Yeah, it's an excellent point that we... Yeah, these stories are real enough for us to, I mean, people orient their entire lives around them, right? You're, you identify with your position in these hierarchies it, to the point where if you lose your position, right, you lose your job or whatever, it can be totally, uh, total defamation or shame, shameful experience. And I guess the Christ story, it's kind of like the ultimate story because it's saying like all of that is subordinate to love right love thy neighbor love one another you know the things that are that we are basically fundamentally right that we that's how we're designed right i'm I'm thinking of marcus aurelius he said human beings are like the left and right hand the rows of upper and lower teeth like we're designed to cooperate and interact but this mimetic uh acquisitive mimesis let's say can sometimes lead us astray and i want to unpack some of these terms for the audience. One thing I want to hit on first though, just to reiterate the importance of mimesis or imitation is one little excerpt here on page seven, Gerard writes, and yet there is nothing or next to nothing in human behavior that is not learned and all learning is based on imitation. If human beings suddenly ceased imitating all forms of culture would vanish. So again, just the importance of basically all learning and cultural transmission is achieved through this, this mimetic process. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I'll give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, You can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. 
By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This is going to be a three-day event held May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Miami, Florida. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event of the year, and the past two years in Miami have been simply amazing. Speakers already announced for 2023 include Michael Saylor, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, and many others. Last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway specifically for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. I want to unpack this acquisitive mimesis because this is one of those terms and it, we use a few different terms to describe this, but I think he's got a great little excerpt here that explains it. Uh, this is from page eight, Gerard writes, there is no reason to exclude appropriation from imitation. Plato nonetheless does just this and the omission passes unnoticed because all of his successors, beginning with Aristotle, have followed his lead. And he goes on to write to describe this. If one ape observes another reach for an object, it is immediately tempted to imitate the gesture. 
It also happens that the animal visibly resists the temptation. And if the imitative gesture, gesture amuses us by reminding us of human beings, the failure to complete it, that is to say the repression of what already can be nearly defined as a desire, amuses us even more. It makes the animal a sort of brother to us by showing it subject to the same fundamental rule as humanity, that of preventing conflict, which the convergence of two or several avid hands toward one and the same object cannot help but provoke. So, you know, this to me gets just straight into the heart of economics that there's limitless wants in the world and there's limited means to satisfy those wants. And so when we're all engaged in this mirroring process, we're almost inevitably going to reach for the same thing at some point. And there, yeah. therein is therein lies conflict. So I, I think I want to unpack that a little bit in, in a very um, straightforward way. Like what Gerard mean, you know, um, desire in, in, in the mimetic way. Um, like what object should be desired, right? It, I think we need to define that. If, if an object is infinite, uh, you lack desire because it's infinite. You, you're kind of like, you don't want to desire something that is, you know, um, abundant, right? You desire something that's scarce, right? So when, when people like desire for an object, they desire for scarcity of, you know, of that object. It doesn't really, if an object is, 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 is kind of infinite, we, we, won't, we won't even desire it. We won't even think about, we won't even have that kind of desire. So desire over an object is desire over a scarcity, right? If you desire something that is scarce, that's often time happens in the, in the, in the free market, right? Free market would decide uh, this, which one is most scarce and, and how you how, how are you gonna, you know, um, know things that are scarce is because, you know, uh, it's hard to get, also it's expensive to get, right? Um, so what what draw really means about you know uh, desire over something, it's desire over a scarce object, and and that desire over a scarce object create conflict over that object. For example, right, gold you know is relatively scarce, and um, you know if there's all there's only like maybe there's hundred ounces of gold in, in the in the safe, and the two guys wanted it bad because you know it, it, you can you can sell it at expensive price and it's scarce. That's why, like you know, civilization, countries, rich, rich people, poor people fight over it and, and think about it. Like you know, this is a because gold is scarce, so we all wanted it, and and when we all wanted it, it become exchangeable money, right? And that's when you know when when you think about money is scarce, that's why you desire. And if you think about like you know, non scarce money, right? You won't you won't desire it. Um, but you still think, you know, it is usable, uh, but you won't desire it. You, you wanted to get rid of it when that were, you have a chance for a scarce good, right? You exchange for a scarce good because your desire is not in the, in, in, in the goods that produce a lot. Your desire is in the goods that produce, you know, less and less. Um, and that creates an interesting dynamic. 
And, you know, and over time, you know, abstractly, right? Not, not talking about physical goods here. Abstractly, um, you, you think about power, power scarce, right? The presidency is scarce. A chairman of a company, uh, a CEO of a company is scarce. So that create a, 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 bigger, a bigger desire for individuals or for groups to fight over, right? And that creates a larger conflict uh, in, in, in the organization or in society as a whole. Uh, it's oftentimes fight over scarce desire, not, not, not like infinite um, abundant type of desire. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. And I think maps on economics wonderfully. You know, we don't, people, for instance, don't fight over oxygen very often. Oxygen yeah. is extremely vital to life, right? Every breath, we're constantly demanding it, but it is so super abundant. It's non-scarce mm -hmm. that we don't, there's no mimetic, acquisitive mimesis about oxygen, right? There's just too much of it. But we do fight over something like gold, right? Gold has no value to our existence in terms of our vitality. We don't need to eat it or breathe it. Yet we've fought over gold probably more than any other, like that and land, probably the two things we fought more, uh, fought over more than anything else in human history. And yeah. it's exactly to your point because it's scarce, right? It's, yeah. and this is, this, this is something like Gerard talks about, uh, like the conflict of the world, like how the world reached to a, a point of extreme conflict. Um, is that it, it, it is because, you know, when you have a scarce object that both parties desire and they fight over it, right? And um, and and it's what scarcity create that kind of desire. And you know, for example, like you know, there's a the history is plenty of evidence where country fight over lands, country fight over gold, and and gold and land represent what it represent. You know, the ultimate power. Right, and if you are a leader, if you are the general of the country, what you really want, what you really want, to desire is what other people have or what other people possess, and you want that, right? And in that in that process of competition, you might compete with the other country to try to get that land, you know, and, and it happens over time uh, in in the um, in, in the human history. Right, like for example, I'm I'm in Taiwan, right? So this is a very interesting. We'll, we'll go back into the modern world now. Like Taiwan has been desired, you know, by you know China, as well as you know the U.S. Right, and we are we are in this um, conflict between the two largest nations of the world. Uh, what that will lead to, I don't know, but it certainly leads to certain you know conflict. If it's getting extreme, we might fight over it. Right, the two nations might fight over it just because the scarce resource Taiwan has, which is you know semiconductor, right? And um, and that's why you see a lot of you know, tension in the news all over the place, and you know and, and that that kind of started escalating as both nation desire increase, right? As both fight over it um, for for this very very small island. Um, and that kind of like, you know, that kind of like happens in, in, in the history, um, again and again, and I, I'm a bit worried, but, um, but, you know, let's see if, if, if we can solve it in the more peaceful way. But if you, if you are general, 
if you've studied Gerard or you are like Gerardian, um, history often leads to the bad outcome, not the good one. Um, so you just have to be prepared. I I'm speaking about more um, pessimistic because you know, when if you, if you read a lot of how you start to think about, you try to be optimistic, but um, the way he interpret interpreted the conflict, you know, when the Mac desire escalated to the extreme, it has to be you you will it will result in a total total war, and that's why he can kind of like you know he warned about you know the nuclear war, he warned about you know the end of the you know the human society and human you know human civilization because we, we we haven't find a way to solve the problem beside you know we go back to the scapegoating mechanism and this time we have the power to destroy the whole world right in in the in the past before nuclear we don't we don't have that power but now human being possess that power and it's kind of like you know we are we are in a good equilibrium right now um but if something, you know, turn, uh, we have the ability to destroy ourselves, and that that could happen when, you know, a two nation fight over a scarce object, and it's always like that, and the, and and that fight will be devastating and will be first time, right? First time ever in human history, we're talking about the end of the world because we possess greater power than ever before. Yes, uh, you know, very important point that this dynamic of acquisitive mimesis is not only occurring at the individual scale, right? It occurs between companies, between nation states in the case of something like Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and we have reached a point in our technological development that we now are so powerful we can destroy the game, right? It's it's never been possible pre-nuclear, but now it's like the stakes are so high that we could actually end it, right? End it for everyone forever, which so that's very, yeah, it's a lot to kind of absorb, but it really is premised on scarcity ultimately, right? Just again, that people want things and there's a limited amount of things. So it conflict naturally ensues when, multiple people go for the one thing or the, the limited amount of things. Yeah. And if you think about what happened in the, in the world today, you know, you, you saw, I want, I want to refer back to one of my, right now, like one of my favorite research economy, economist, um, Zoltan, Zoltan Boza, right? He wrote about competition over commodity and commodity is scarce. Right, and scarce commodity is what driven the, the you know the world that we used to know, which is the, the you know globalization, right? And country and country work work you know in the equilibrium. Uh, they work seamlessly together. Now, like we have a deglobalization world that we are entering into, which is full of mimetic conflict because we are we are trying to fight over um, scarce good like oil, natural gas, all these are, are scarce good. And um, and what that will lead to is just, you know, you see the Ukraine conflict, right? You see the war happen there. Um, 
and um, would that lead to the bigger consequences? Could be, um, and that just form in the notion that you know Gerard described, right? When 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 you need uh, scarce goods and you desire of it, and you just have to fight over it. Yeah, this yeah scarcity, right? We're we're trying to overcome scarcity in both ways, right? Whether we are, I think the there was Oppenheimer talked about the economic versus the political means, right? The economic means of overcoming scarcity is trade and innovation, wealth accumulation, and then the political means is war, right? Take it, <laughs> seize it, uh, confiscate it, whatever it may be, and. Just to try and unpack that a bit, you know, scarcity, we we visit this topic a lot on the show and it's not, people often think it's purely a supply side phenomenon, but it's not. It's really anywhere that there's more net desire or demand than there is supply or means to satisfy that desire. So it's these, it very much is acquisitive mimesis, like almost in a nutshell, right? It's like, more people want the thing than there are of the thing than there is an amount of the thing. So that is scarcity. Um, and I wonder, you know, just on the topic of gold, this is something I wanted to just spitball with you, you know, in terms of how gold monetized the, the common narrative is, you know, it was originally a collectible people would, you know, find this in, in riverbeds and adorn themselves with it. And then eventually it became a store of value and then later a medium of exchange and finally a unit of account. And that was kind of like the path of the long arc of gold's history to becoming money. But I wonder how much, I mean, I feel like acquisitive amesis has to be a part of gold monetization in a way, right? Like people start, whoever starts to wear it, they adorn themselves with it. That triggers this mimetic desire, right? Other people imitating, right? Oh, this guy's wearing some gold on his tunic or whatever i would like to wear some gold in my tunic and then due to that just the natural properties of gold that it's very hard to produce like it's very we're very slow to increase the supply of gold for instance so in that process that we are economizing over time right maybe we're increasing output of everything else food uh buildings tools so the purchasing power of that gold would be growing over time so originally it's a collectible, but because we're increasing the output of, you know, food, capital, et cetera, that the purchasing power per unit, we're increasing that capital faster than we're increasing the gold supply. The purchasing power of each unit of gold would be increasing. So that would accelerate this mimetic desire, I would imagine, right? People see other people have gold. Gold is making them more rich over time. They're basically, you know, ancient holders, holders, I guess you might say. And then that further uh, amplifies this desire for gold, and it literally, you know, elevates it to global the global monetary standard by the 1800s, I think. Um, yeah. And you know, depending where you draw the line, but basically, gold had had become dominant by then. Um, I, I, think, um, I think there's, you know, every single money um, that we have been used in in the human history. It's derived from, I think it's derived from that desire, right? For example, seashell, right? Seashell is scarce on a mountain, but not on the sea, 
And that's why people use it as a currency, as a money in the mountain, not at the sea, because at the sea is abandoned, at the mountain is scarce. And that over time kind of get abandoned. Why? Because technology improved, people can ship seashell to the mountain much faster and money increase. So that's collapsed in, in terms of um, supply and this last desire over seashell. And, and now we, we got, we, we're going to, you know, you know um, gold and silver, right? Gold and silver, hard to produce, it's scarce. Uh, and why it becomes a currency and the money is because there's a couple unique characteristic about it, right? Is you know, it is scarce first and um, hard to produce, right? And, you know, you can melt it in any shape you want. Um, and it's shiny, right? It's artistic. Um, also, it, you know, it, it, it is a form of store value, it's a form of medium exchange, all that good characteristic of, of money, right? And that becomes desirable over time. It doesn't happen one day, right? When, when, when you offer someone to go as a money, they, they tell you, you know, give me seashell. But, you know, at, over time, people desire and that desire increase, it becomes a, a kind of like a global money. Not only just Western civilization accepted, right? The, the, the goal, the, 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 the whole world accepted as a money, right? You look at Asian um, China or, you know, Asian, you know, Egyptian, whatever that they, they, they are set go as the, the de facto money and that doesn't happen overnight it happened in kind of like reinforce the matter desire like people desire it and it's hard to produce and people desire more and ultimately i think the best money is often the one that people most desire it's a goods and services it's a goods that most people desire and that becomes a de facto money I think gold monetization path is kind of like that, right? First, people don't understand it. And then it becomes the de facto global money because everyone desired it. So I, I think, you know, I switched to fiat, right? Fiat, fiat become a dominant form of money because why it solved the one of the major problems with gold is this uh, is portability, right? If paper money is much more portable. Uh, you know, uh, you know, fiat, digital fiat is much more portable, um, but it, it doesn't solve the problem of scarce, scarcity. It's, it's abundant money. And that's why you see the, um, you know, but in, in, in past, it's not like that, right? In past, it's like fiat money can exchange for gold, but that's not the case anymore, right? It abandoned the human kind of like civilization abandoned that concept, right? We, we will no longer convert our fiat into gold, um, and we now carry just fiat, right? And that fiat is a representation of credit. Um, and, and, and we can't run that experience for a while if, because we trust in the centralized authority, you know, the central banks, right? And we believe they're not, not going to increase the supply and they're going to maintain the monetary policy as stable as it can be, but that's not the case. Right in 2008, we saw that in 2020, um, we saw that you know there's a bridge in trust, um, and and the desire over the fiat money decreased a lot over time, right? Because why? It's very simple because it's abundant. You know, central bank can print as much as money as they could, and so why I 
So why you want to desire over that fiat money? Right. right? There's no reason. Um, and then Bitcoin comes along, right? And Bitcoin introduced um, this idea of fixed supply. And there's nothing else like it, right? It's, it's solving the, uh, um, the problem of the gold, right? It's, it's basically the better version of gold. And which, you know, over time, I think, as a desire kind of like reinforce itself, people desire the scarce good over time. And ultimately they become the most desirable goods in the world. And then they become the money in the world. And I, I think all the good money, right? All the, all the backrock of economy and civilization is, is always based on this, this, this concept of this, um, this, um, this idea of the best scarce goods and that become the money of the society and economy. And that's how you're gonna build a different a, a civilization, right? And that money cannot be seized, cannot be, cannot, you know, cannot be, cannot be corrupt, right? And, and it is, it's not gonna be um, centralized. So I, I think there's all, all aspect, right? Of what is a good, you know, good money and ultimately, the good money is most scarce money. Yeah, it's a lot of great points there. And that, you know, the game or game, I don't know, this acquisitive mimetic pattern or phenomena, it's not something you can like opt in or opt out of even. You know, I'm thinking of China, India, they stayed on a yeah. silver standard the longest, but they basically lost purchasing power as a result of the rest of the world moving to a gold standard. So, you know, they're sort of trying to not play that game. They're trying to, you know, have their own standard, but they had an, they had a less scarce money ultimately. And that cost them, right? It, it cost them actual power in the world, purchasing power, and then ultimately political power. And so- Yeah, and you touched on a good point. Like you're losing power, right? You're yeah. losing political power, you're calling power. Why are you losing the power? Because you're not holding the most desirable goods. Yes. That's why you're losing power. Um, yes. And then they have a, there's consequence of losing power over scarce good, right? And this is, this is very like deep, deep, deep down into like um, psychology or human nature. Like you as an individual, right? Or as a country or as a company, whatever, right? As organization, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to possess the most scarce good. So that you you won't you won't be um, losing power over competitors, or you're not losing power over time. And the power can be like purchasing power, right? Political power, economy power. And if you lose all that, you know, by not holding the most desirable goods, you know, there's a consequence, and the consequence is there. Yeah, I'm reminded of the Ayn Rand quote that you're free to ignore reality, but you are not free to ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. No. Um, you know, it's basically the, the hardest money to produce is going to become the focus of mimetic desire. Right? Exactly. And this is like a revelation for me when I read your role. It's like when, when I think about money and history of money and how mimetic desire plug into it, 
you see the pattern, right? Um, always like, let's, you know, you need to be first, like let's, 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 let's you know, um, let's, you know, let's, let's talk about like characteristic of money, right? You have to make sure this goods um, satisfy all the needs of being a money, right? I think until, until you know, Bitcoin discovered, um, there is no such a money like that, right? Gold is most um, close to it. And, right. but Bitcoin as technology improved, it, it kind of like improved on, you know, the gold's characteristic, even, even, you know, hundred X better or thousand X better. And, um, and the roadmap of Bitcoin becoming, uh, you know, a money of the world, you know, um, it has to be scarce and desire, desirable. And that's how monetization happened. It's how all the money becomes money. Because, because before they become money, they just commodity, collectible. And when they become money, um, you need you need all of characteristic, right? Portability, um, scarcity, um, you know, in Bitcoin, you have programmability, um, you have unseasonability, right? All these characteristics become the de facto good money or, or a good hard money. Um, so over time, you know, as you know, because Mehmeda desire always reinforce each other. As you and me try to desire Bitcoin, right? It's just you and me, right? But the desire create uh, at that moment when we both desire Bitcoin. And now you, if you look at the adoption, right? There are millions of people, corporation, governments desire over Bitcoin. And that kind of reinforces itself, kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Is too large, too big. Um, is is the momentum is too huge? It's just hard to stop the monetization um, process. And that ultimately, why why is that right? Why is that? Why the momentum is so strong that you cannot even break it or even stop it? That even the government cannot stop it? It's because the the desire over scarce goods is too huge. It's embedded in the human nature. It's embedded in in, in the in the creation of the human history. It's just in you, right? It's in, in every single people's psychology. Like people want what others want, right? And 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 that's just the idea how um, you want Bitcoin, right? And and maybe then your neighbor wants it, right? And they start to desire over it. And over time, as more people desire over it, it becomes the, the money of the world. And we're kind of like on, on that path already. It's just like how how, how long we should take. Uh, to get there, right? I think gold took like maybe a couple hundred years to get the global money status. Um, how how fast will Bitcoin go, right? I, I think, I don't know, but it, it will be pretty fascinating. It will be pretty fast, I think, because it's digital, global, accessible. Um, but you know, ultimately I want to go back to, you know, the, the idea of nomadic desire. And that's why this phenomenon has happened like this. And it happened before, right? It just followed the same pattern. It has the same monetization process. Um, so, you, you know, I, I think Gerard also touched on this a lot, right? There's a pattern in, in the myth, there's a pattern in, in the Jesus story. And uh, I think that always linked back to his, you know, idea of mad desire. Um, and same thing with the money that we are, we are using.
um, if you're looking at the history of the body, right, there's also a pattern. And you find the magnetic desire everywhere in the process of monetization. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, just thinking about from a nation state standpoint alone, that Bitcoin lets you monetize these otherwise useless energy sources, right? You can monetize, you know, na natural gas that you might flare, for instance, you can now monetize that with Bitcoin. So even if a, a, a state doesn't even need to care about Bitcoin at all, but just the fact that they're obviously going to want to monetize something that would otherwise be waste, that yeah. induces mimetic desire, right? One country does it, another country sees that country doing it, they want to do it. Yep. That yeah. the net increase to the hash rate, the Bitcoin mining hash rate is increasing the security and therefore the value of the network. Yep. It's making the money harder to produce mm -hmm. and it's inducing other groups to join the race. So it's like, there is this real unstoppable mimetic process occurring. That's just one example at one level. That's obviously a big one, but it's also among Bitcoiners, right? We all say we have the same amount, not enough. Right. So we're yes. actively engaged in mimetic acquisitive mimesis with one another when it comes to Bitcoin. And I think it's, I don't see how you stop that from that phenomenon from proliferating at every level. It's like, so yeah. long as people want wealth and power, Bitcoin will monetize just by virtue of what it is. Yeah. I think this is a, you know, the truth behind every dominant money, right? This is a, the, this is like a things hidden since the foundation of the world. The, the things hidden since the foundation of the money, right? How the process goes. Yeah, it's, it's reinforcing the mimetic desire. And the most scarce good has the strongest mimetic desire reinforcing, right? If it's not scarce, there's, there's no mimetic um, desire reinforcing charter because Bitcoin is the fixed supply and it's uncorruptible. That makes it even more desirable than any money in the, in the world that has come before it, right? And um, and that's like a central thesis of me, you know, investing in the Bitcoin and naming my company uh, Mimesis. It's just, you know, the realizing the pattern of monetization of global money. Uh, I think Bitcoin's on the path to that. And um, I think, um, it could take a decade, it could take, you know, generations, but I think um, there's nothing else. There's nothing else you wanted to desire more than Bitcoin because everything you knew in life is not capped. Only Bitcoin is capped. I mean, I mean, capped, I mean, goods and services that's capped, right? And, um, and I think that's powerful. And, um, and, and I think uh, as the magnetic desire reinforcing and the momentum is going to take us to, you know, the, the kind of like a promised land and there's nothing you can stop it because it's just so embedded in, in the human nature, things just happen like that, right? Even you have something that come below, you know, quote unquote, better Bitcoin, like the crypto bros are, thinking about talking about you know they, they are now they are not actually facing the the, um, the real issue right 
and uh, they they have they, they don't have time. It, it, time is not on their side, right? They cannot reinforce nomadic desire in a short period of time. This is this is not happen just by introducing marketing, introducing a new technology. It, it doesn't happen like that. It happens. This, this is like a phenomenon. You know, you don't know how it happened, but it happened. Like Bitcoin in, in this history, you know, we don't know. I, I don't. I don't even know like how this how this phenomenon happened in the first place. But it's kind of like you know, you know, it happens, and it has this desire already reinforcing charger, and and that's the only asset or, or the um, the only money that I think has a chance to get there. Other is just like, you know, chasing behind Bitcoin. They have less desirable, um, you know, um, characteristic, right? And uh, and this is why I, I, I've been a Bitcoin only guy in, in the way investing in cryptocurrency, because when I view it from the magic desire standpoint, um, no other cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin match the uh, criteria. And, um, and I think, like, like, you know, like Christianity, right? You have, you need a pure foundation. You need a foundation that is built on truth. And that's like another, you know, deep um, fault on Bitcoin because Bitcoin is built on this truth foundation. It's built because, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is, you know, wanted to change the money system right from the outside he wanted to create a money that's not controlled by the government right and, and it's fixed amount right and it has all the good characteristic of a, of a of a good money um and, and the foundation is so pure it's just like you know founding of a new uh civilization and you you need you need truth that's hidden uh in, in the protocol which we can all analyze it and we can all uh see it because it's open source there's no hidden message. It's all, all you can like just interpret it based on the code, based on what happened on the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And to me, that's just like you open up like a a pure open source naked uh, script, right? You can analyze it yourself. You can see it for yourself. You don't have you don't have you don't need any other people to tell you uh, this is a, this is a this is a right Bitcoin. Right, because you can see it for yourself. Um, so, so yeah, so so this is a very interesting, you know, segue into like um, Bitcoin as a network and Bitcoin as a money. I think it both reinforces itself, um, you know, as a true foundation of a civilization as a good money. Um, and I think the network, the foundation of the network, um, is also very pure. And uh, it's not like, you know, it, it, let's go back to the uh, the story of Ken Abel, right? Ken Abel's story is kind of, is kind of like the the, the, the Alcoin foundation is is found on the bad memetic, right? Is is found, found on the, I would not say to shrink, but it's found on the bad behavior. It's found on this notion of pop and down, right? It's not found out um, the idea that, you know, there's a fair distribution or an idea that nobody can corrupt it, right? Satoshi cannot create that, um, but nobody else after it create create a similar similar goods, 
right? And um, and I think that makes me, you know, extra um, favor Bitcoin because you can see how the network is formed from day one, and there's no interruption from the Satoshi himself, right? After he disappeared, um, because of that good foundation, lays lays out a good um, mimetic desire. Now, like you know, we we try to we we all try to imitate. In a way, like what Satoshi is try to try to um, accomplish, right? We we all imitate him in in a good way. Yeah, and, build uh, build something meaningful and then get out of the way, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, we, we kind of like you know, it, it's, it's a good mimetic in, in the way, right? If you want, if you try to imitate, um, you know, a, a technocrat, in, in, in the, you know, like those altcoin founder that's that's to me i think that's not not a way to to go and i think this is it's just a bad mimetic you don't imitate um people that want to grab power and status they have so much ego right you don't you don't you don't imitate don Quan, right <laughs> you want to you want to you want to imitate satoshi so that's a good kind of like you know mimetic um forming by you know understanding bitcoin and that can reflect in your life um in, in a major way right just like you you try to imitate jesus christ and be like him it's a good way to have a good life right yes. and to imitate king you are imitate the life of murder right so i think this is it's deep it's very deep in, in terms of like how we in, in terms of like, you know, money and also the network itself. Yeah. I, I, one of the, my favorite, one of the, my favorite aspects about Bitcoin is that it is, it's like this, the title of his book, nothing is hidden within Bitcoin, right? That's one of its primary values is that there is nothing hidden. There's no, no way yeah. to obfuscate or deceive or lie or conceal. It's just open source what you see is what you get. Um, and it's created as kind of like a perfect history or a way, you know, like that what's on the Bitcoin blockchain has just happened. It's not really arguable, not really open to reinterpretation. It's kind of like a story that can't be rewritten by the winners, which I think is really important. You know, it's, we see history often get kind of reinterpreted as new um, polities or countries come into power. But with the Bitcoin blockchain, it's not open to that reinterpretation. It's just this very clean, perfected economic history. And, you know, I think there's something here too, because that there is also this fiat mimetic crisis where everyone's fighting to control the money in the world, right? And that if you just look at the history of World War, you know, the conclusion of World War II, what's the first thing the United States does after it declares itself victorious? It rewrites the global banking rules in its own favor. So there's mm -hmm. this ongoing geopolitical struggle to control the monetary system or the economic order. And Bitcoin seems like sort of like Christ helps redeem us from uh, these cycles of mimetic vengeance and violence. Yeah. It seems yeah. like maybe yeah. Bitcoin can help us do that at the geopolitical scale, at least yeah. the great promise of Bitcoin. Obviously we're early days, but 
it's just fascinating to me. All these parallels, they don't, it's a little bit too much to be just coincidental. So yes. I think, I think both are similar in a way that they reveal the truth, right? They reveal the hidden truth. Like what Jesus reveal is the scapegoat mechanism that happened in the past. He wants to break it. That's the Ross interpretation, right? He wants to break the cycle. He wants to fight against Satan, right? Fight against the evil. And um, his, oh, his story is just about breaking, this, breaking that mimetic cycle, that mimetic cycle. And what um, Satoshi and Bitcoin come alone, they, they, he, he written that in the, in the in Genesis block, right? Gen, you know, Chancellor um, on the break, second ballot for bank. That message is so clear. He, he revealed what? Your money is not scarce. Central bank has your money and they control you. You should break that control. We should break that cycle. And I call it, you know, the cycle of fiat, right? And the cycle of fiat or cycle of centralized money has been around for, for many, many, many centuries. Uh, whenever in the, in the human history before Bitcoin ever break from a, a, an authority control money, right? Even the gold standard, right? It, it authority control gold, right? And um, and they can have all the resources to seize your gold, to make a change of your use of gold, right? And and that could you know that that could change with Bitcoin. And, uh, and Bitcoin has a technological advantage um, to avoid being seized, to avoid being, you know, truly regulated in, in a, at a political level by anyone, right? Um, and, and what, you know, Bitcoin revealed is, is what, you know, had been haunted us, haunted the humanity for thousands of years, right? Is the control of the money. Right, and, and, and what Jesus kind of in parallel did is he wants to separate, you know, the state and the religion in a way and break through that, you know, scapegoating mechanism. You don't need a scapegoat to resolve the conflict. It's just, you know, peace and love, right? How, how, come, yeah. you, how come the humanity is so dumb to realize that? But he's like the first one to reveal that in, 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 in an eye-opening way. And... I think Bitcoin is the same thing. It revealed that it's truly evil in this nature, which is how come authority and you know central bank can control the money. And that money means power. And if you try to create undesirable money and force everybody to desire it, uh, that's just a disaster for the economy. Um, and you, if you look at the history, it's always like that, right? The woman, they, they dilute the, the gold coin, silver coin, you know, even in Asian, Asian China, they dilute the silver coin, they dilute the gold coin, uh, try to stay relevant. And that all creates undesirable money and that corrupt the entire economy. Um, yeah, I, th I think Bitcoin tried to like reveal that truth. And even more so is creating a tool um, enable individual, enable uh, organization to escape, right? It's, it's, it's kind of lifeboat. And if you don't, if you haven't realized that, right, you should be, you should be studying the matter desire, study Gerard and think about um, 
how this will end up. Like the fiat, the fiat has a fiat crisis, and and I, I think it's a bad magic, right? How come you want to, you know, desire over, over um, you know, abundance of money, right? Or non-scarce money, and that just create um, a bad feedback group for yes. your for your individual psychology, for your life, for your family, right? It's so deep you, you don't you don't even kind of realize like how fiat how this fountain of money has yeah. created a problem yeah, it's, a, it's a great framing actually that every dollar printed makes dollars less desirable while mm -hmm. at the same time it makes bitcoin more desirable yep and so that's it right we're not we're so addicted to printing money it's never going to stop as all of human history proves and all of the desire will ultimately flow to the thing that can't be printed or counterfeited. Um, yeah. Okay. I think this is an awesome introduction. We kind of took a Bitcoin tangent at the end there. Um, but hopefully we've done a good job laying out some of the key themes in this book. And I think we will continue this conversation because there is a lot more in store. Um, Lewis, could you let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Um, you can go follow me on Twitter, um, Lewis H. Liu. And um, also follow me, follow the company, memesiscapital.com. Um, you know, we have we have done some great research and we did um awesome video um, with MicroStrategy and Swan on Bitcoin generation wealth. Mm. Um I think, um, you know, I already lay out my thesis here in the podcast related to Mimetic Desire and Bitcoin. Um, if you want, if you want to, to reach out, you know, feel free to reach, reach me out on Twitter. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. Lewis, thank you so much. See you back here again soon. I right, thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.